I remember many years ago in high school at Faith Academy, we did a play called Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Now some of you, probably most of you are unfamiliar with British humor, and so you probably don't know Monty Python and the Holy Grail, but it's a play that's been made into a movie. I played the role of a servant called Patsy. Uh, The story is told of King Arthur looking for the grail, and Patsy, his trusted servant, follows him around. My role in this play had no speaking lines. All I did throughout this play was to follow King Arthur and take two empty halves of a coconut husk and clop them together to make the sound of horses galloping. It was actually quite effective, but that's all I did. The entire drama, the entire play, was to take two halves of a coconut husk and put them together to make the sound of horses. I thought that was the greatest role ever. Anyway, the reason I wondered at that time, without having watched the movie, wondered why in the world would Patsy take two coconut shells? I thought it was because the high school production that produced uh, this play was on a limited budget. And so instead of getting horse props, they used two tropical coconuts, of which we have a plenty here in the Philippines, to use to make the sound of horses galloping. Well, you can imagine my surprise when I finally got around to watching the movie many years later and seeing that in this major Hollywood movie, they actually also used two coconut husks to simulate the sound of horses walking and galloping. Now, it has left a very deep impression on my mind, so much so that whenever I hear the sound of horses, what comes to my mind are two coconut husks coming together. Decades later, that is what has been impressed upon my mind. You see, that is the power of drama. That is the power of a play. And that's why I love drama. I love plays. I love musicals, musical theater. Because sometimes it is the most effective way to communicate something when you act it out. It may surprise you, but there is a place in the Bible where God will ask one of His prophets to perform four dramatic acts to get across a message to very hard-headed people. And this is the prophet Ezekiel. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Ezekiel. We have been studying this book for the past few weeks, and we are now at Ezekiel chapter 4. If you're new to the Bible, the book of Ezekiel is found in the Old Testament. It is after the book of Lamentations and before the book of Daniel. We're going to be taking a look at four chapters this morning, chapters 4 to 7, and because of the length of the passages, we're only going to spot highlight a few verses, but I do encourage that when you go home, that you will go back and read these chapters. Now, why will God ask Ezekiel, his prophet, to act out these four dramatic Acts, why will God ask him to display these vignettes before the people of Israel? If you remember from last week, we mentioned that God had made Ezekiel mute. That means he could not speak. He could not speak until God opened his mouth to give him a message to deliver, but then soon after he would again shut up the mouth of Ezekiel. So as a mute, 
God will now cause his prophet Ezekiel to perform four vignettes, four dramatized acts, to show forth very clearly that God's judgment was upon Jerusalem and the nation of Israel as punishment for their history of rebellion and disobedience. The first act is found in the first three verses of chapter 4. It speaks of the fact of the siege of Babylon. You see, Ezekiel is to take a piece of clay tablet, and he is to draw out the city of Jerusalem in its outlined form on this clay tablet. Now, there would be no doubt in anyone's mind when they saw this clay tablet that this refers to the city of Jerusalem with its unique shape. In verse 2, the Bible tells us that Ezekiel, on this scale model of this city, is to draw a siege around the city, perhaps using dirt or clay, putting a wall, an attacking wall around the city of Jerusalem, around 360 degrees of this city, to exemplify the siege that will soon come to this city. And for those of you who are unaware, the purpose of a siege and warfare is to starve out a city by blockading any food or water or any supplies from getting in so that the inhabitants of the city would be starved out to come out. Of course, what comes with this siege are an encircling army encamped around the city, which Ezekiel is also to display, along with battering rams ready to take over the city. And this is exactly what the nation of Babylon would do in its final siege of the city of Jerusalem. Then, interestingly enough, Ezekiel, once he has created this scale model of the siege of Jerusalem, is to get an iron plate. And he is to take this iron plate and put it between his face and this scale model. And then he is to turn away his head from the iron plate. And this would be a sign, as Ezekiel dramatized this to those who were watching, a sign that God had turned His face away from what would be the desperate cries of a people under siege. Enough was enough. God's patience had run to its end. In their desperation, the people will cry out, but God would no longer come to their rescue. The iron plates signify in this steel metal pan that the cries of the people were not heard by God figuratively. It was a final prophetic judgment upon the Jewish people that will be executed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. The second dramatic act is found in verses 4 to 8. In this same chapter, Ezekiel is told to lie on his left side for 390 days and then to turn over and to lie on his right side for 40 days. Each of these days would correspond to the number of years that the nations of Israel and Judah had sinned against the Lord. So the prophet would be facing the north when he's lying on his left side that would serve to condemn the northern kingdom of Israel and then when he would be facing south, when he lay on his right side to condemn the southern kingdom of Judah. Now most likely he wasn't in that position for the entire day because he was called out to act on other things. But perhaps at least a few hours a day, he would lay in that position while the people, people looked at him. 
In fact, the Bible tells us in verse 8 that he was tied up. Perhaps Ezekiel had asked his servant to tie him up. So tight was the restraint that the Bible tells us in verse 8 of chapter 4 that he was unable to flip over. And this would not only signify the length of the siege of Jerusalem, but the fact that God's judgment was final. There was no way to undo what God had purposed to do to His people. After years of their rebellion, this was it. Now the next two dramatic acts by Ezekiel prophetically focused on the results and the details of this siege of Jerusalem. In verses 9 to 17, which is the third act, Ezekiel is asked to prepare food from the grains that are found in Israel. And he is to put them and measure them and put them into containers for his daily consumption while he was lying on one side or the other. Now, he's not counting calories. It is because God had asked him to measure the food and what he is able to drink. It would simulate the scarcity of the food and the water during the siege. In verse 10 and 11, it tells us what amount he has measured. Ezekiel could only eat 8 ounces of food, 227 grams. That's less than the weight of two size D batteries, if you know what I'm talking about. Or about 1.4 size of a billiard ball, the weight of a billiard ball. Very, very little food that he could eat every day. He could only drink two and a third quarts of water. That's about 0.63 liters of water. That's less than two cans of Coke if you are looking for a frame of reference of water. And again, it would show that the food and the water supply for the city's inhabitants during the siege by the Babylonians would indeed be terrible, brutal, and scarce. Now notice verse 12 and 13, and then we go to 15, something very interesting, so let me read it. God instructed Ezekiel, And you shall eat it as barley cakes, and bake it using fuel of human waste in their sight. Then the Lord said, So shall the children of Israel eat their defiled bread among the Gentiles, where I will drive them. So I said, Ah, Lord God, indeed I have never defiled myself from my youth till now. I have never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts, nor has abominable flesh ever come into my mouth. So God said to me, See, I am giving you cow dung instead of human waste and you shall prepare your bread over it. God had initially asked Ezekiel to use human waste to make the fire that would make the bread from the grains he had portioned out. But this was so offensive to the prophet because the handling of human waste would have caused him to be ceremonially unclean. So the Lord graciously allowed Ezekiel to use cow waste instead of human waste. Because the prophet said, ever since I was young, I had never broken the Mosaic or Old Testament laws. But the point of this, look at verse 13, is that the people were already breaking the law. The law of Moses that they were to live under. In fact, they pretended like they were following the entirety of the law as they followed the dietary laws. But the rest of the laws, the moral laws, 
they cast out. And so God said, you know what? Let's stop playing games. I'm going to cast you out to a foreign land, verse 13, and you will be ceremonially unclean, even in your dietary laws, because you will eat their foreign food, and you will have no option. In their rebellion, God was saying, why pretend? Why pretend that you are following all of the law when you're only following a part of the law? so that you can say you are a righteous Jew, or that you are a chosen child of God. I wonder if that sounds familiar to us. If I were to put that example in today's context, there are so many Christians that do the same thing. We tell others proudly, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. But the reality is that is simply a title for us. We're a Christian. What religion are you? I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And yet it is ironic that although we say we are followers of Jesus Christ, we do not follow Jesus. We pick and choose what we want to follow. And everything else is that simply a suggestion. So God is telling us, as He told the people of Israel, you might as well not pretend to be what you're not. You might as well not pretend that you are a Christian when you are picking and choosing the rules that I've set forth for you in the Old New Testament. Stop pretending. Just don't mention it. And that was the point. You might as well continue to live a sinful life lest you try to pretend and pick and choose what you want to do. It was a condemnation on the people of Israel. But in the present application, it is a warning for us as well. Look at the fourth dramatic act found in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. In this last dramatic act, it shows us the results of the siege. Verse 1. And you, son of man, take a sharp sword... Take it as a barber's razor and pass it over your head and beard. Then take scales to weigh and divide the hair. Pretty dramatic. God asks Ezekiel to shave the hair on his head and then to shave the beard that was on his face. At that time, all men had a beard. And then he was to take all of the hair shavings, weigh it, and then divide it into three equal parts leaving only a few strands of hair. And what is he to do with these hair shavings that has been divided into three equal parts? Look at verse 2. You shall burn with fire one-third in the midst of the city. When the days of the siege are finished, then you shall take one-third and strike around it with a sword, and one-third you shall scatter in the wind. I will draw out a sword after them. So the Bible tells us in verse 2, he leaves his house. He is to walk around the city. Imagine the shock as the people saw a very famous Ezekiel, now bald and without a beard. He is walking around the city. When he gets to the city center, the Bible tells us, he is to take one-third of the hair shavings and he is to burn it there. If we were to jump down to verse 12, it, talk, it tells us what 
that means. It tells us that in the burning of this one-third of Ezekiel's hair, it was a condemnation and a prophetic judgment that one-third of the people of Jerusalem would die of hunger. They would die of plague. They would die of the adverse condition that was brought about by the siege. In fact, the Bible tells us the conditions in Jerusalem were so bad that they had to resort to cannibalism. Look at verse 9 and 10. And I will do among you what I have never done, and the like of which I will never do again because of all your abominations. Therefore fathers shall eat their sons in your midst, and sons shall eat their fathers. And I will execute judgments among you, and all of you who remain I will scatter to all the winds. The siege is so terrible and so complete that the people in such dire straits are forced to eat other people. And historians tell us this is exactly what happens as the Babylonians come to conquer the people of Israel. Ezekiel is then to take the second third of his hair shavings, and he's to go around the city chopping it up with a sword. And this was to show that those who survived the siege would face the Babylonian sword, and another third of the inhabitants of Jerusalem would die. And again, history affirms what biblical prophecy tells us happened. The final third of Ezekiel's hair shavings was to be scattered into the wind, which meant that even if they survived the famine of the siege, even if they survived the Babylonian sword when they came out of the city, that they would be taken away and scattered to a foreign land in exile, into captivity. And that is what will happen to the last third of the inhabitants of Jerusalem. But there is a glimmer of hope. Look at verse 3 and 4. You shall also take a small number of them and bind them in the edge of your garment. Then take some of them again and throw them into the midst of the fire and burn them in the fire. From there a fire will go out into all the house of Israel. With a few strands of hair, Ezekiel is to attach it to his clothes and then throw it into the fire. But this would represent... That even though God is pouring out His rightful wrath upon His people, He would preserve a remnant. And they too will undergo terrible suffering, but He will preserve them. God is still gracious, even amongst His judgments. You know, this actually makes God look like a vengeful, unloving God. We don't like this description of God. We like the God of the New Testament the God who is gracious, the God who is merciful, the God who you can almost hug and He hugs you back. A picture of God embracing His children. And that's true. All that is true. But the God of the New Testament is the same God as the Old Testament. And how God portrays Himself in the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. But how in the world do you justify that a loving God can discipline with such vengeance. And this is where we draw out three applications. God will reveal that His actions are justified 
And he will tell us why he does so to Jerusalem and to the people of Israel. And from that revelation about how God operates, I hope we can apply some things into our life. Look at verses 5 to 8 of chapter 5. Thus says the Lord God, This is Jerusalem. I have set her in the midst of the nations and the countries all around her. She has rebelled against my judgments by doing wickedness more than the nations and against my statutes more than the countries that are all around her. For they have refused my judgments and they have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have multiplied disobedience more than the nations that are all around you, have not walked in my statutes nor kept my judgments, nor even done according to the judgments of the nations that are all around you. Therefore, note this, thus says the Lord God, indeed I, even I, am against you and will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. God wants to make it abundantly clear in verses 5 to 8 that He is not senselessly pouring out His judgment. God has been very patient. It is because generation after generation have rebelled against Him. They have ignored the constant warnings by the many prophets God has sent them that now they will be judged. In fact, God says in verse 5, I gave you a privileged position among all of the nations of the world. Look at a map. Look where the land of Canaan is. It is at the center of three major continents. Europe, Asia, Africa. God gave them this most privileged of positions so that they can serve as the light of the world. They who believe in the living God, Yahweh, can live their life with such light and in such difference from all of the pagan nations that surrounded them that they would draw others to the light of the living God, Yahweh. But what does the Bible tell us? Verse 6. In spite of this privileged position, they rebelled. They lived sinful lives, even worse than the nations that surrounded them. They who were given the light of truth lived in such a way that they were worse than the pagan nations that surrounded them. Can you imagine that? And that's why God's actions are justified. In the same way, Christians, you need to understand that you and I are privileged. We are privileged with truth. God has placed you in a blessed position as He has placed you in your various spheres of influences that you are to go and to live your life in such a way that you are salt and light of this world. And yet here is the sad reality. Most Christians are no better than non-Christians. In the way we live our lives, we are no better in ethics, in compassion, in humanity, in truth. No better than the rest of the world. So why then would the world want to be attracted to the light of Christ? if we are living our lives no better than the world. Let me be honest with you. Being a pastor of a church, I know some of the things that happen amongst Christians 
especially amongst Christian businessmen. And if I were still in my corporate job doing business, I would not necessarily want to go into a business partnership with a Christian just because he's a Christian. In many ways, because of what I know about Christians, I may even choose to go into business with a non-Christian. Because I have seen Christians do things that are even more unethical and worse than what non-believers would do. And that is sad. That is a condemnation of our generation. We must be different we have been given the privileged position of having the truth of Jesus Christ in our life. A new perspective. A new way to live. We should be different. Look at verse 13. Our first takeaway from all of this. Thus shall my anger be spent, and I will cause my fury to rest upon them, and I will be avenged. And they shall know that I, the Lord, has spoken it in my zeal when I have spent my fury upon them. Three takeaways, all predicated upon the phrase, the Lord has spoken. You see, the first thing verse 13 teaches us, number one, if you're taking notes, is that judgment, discipline, is meant to right a wrong. Discipline, judgment, is meant to right a wrong. That is the purpose of discipline. It is to bring a wayward people back into the fold. And it comes from a loving God. A loving God disciplines His people to bring them into a right path. There it is in verse 13. I will pour out my wrath and fury on them, which is exactly what they deserve, with the intention of doing what? Look at verse 13 that they shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken. They shall know the Lord. God enacts discipline amongst His people and brings judgment so that we will change to the better. We need to understand that a loving God indeed punishes and disciplines because He loves. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, there it is, as plain as day, the Lord disciplines the one He loves. The Lord disciplines the one He loves. A loving parent has to discipline their children because that parent loves that child and wants that child to change, to be a better person. Isn't that the point of discipline, parents? The child doesn't understand it. The child thinks you're just being mean. The child thinks you're the meanest mother in the world or the meanest father, or the strictest father in the world, they do not understand that discipline comes because a parent so loves that child that they want that child to avoid the pitfalls of life. And so, parents correct their children. May I say that a parent who does not discipline their children is a parent that does not really love their child, doesn't love them enough, to want to discipline. As I've said many a times, out of us three siblings, I was the most disciplined in my family. Yes, I needed it the most. But you know what? I could have grown up very bitter at why my parents disciplined me the most. 
I could have told you and told all my friends, you know, I feel so unloved. My parents punished me the most. They always picked on me. Their attention and focus was always on me. I wonder why. Oh, my parents hated me. And now that I'm an adult, I'm free. But no. I'm proud to say today, I believe I'm the most loved child. And people ask why. And I will tell them, because I got spanked the most. They loved me the most because they disciplined me the most. They wanted the best for me. People have asked, well, when did your mom stop spanking you? You know what age my mom stopped spanking me? When I was 15. Now you may think, boy, he was a bad kid. Yes, I was. My mom stopped spanking me when I was already a teenager, playing American football. That's how big I was. And she would use a bamboo stick, and boy, those bamboo sticks are aerodynamic. And I remember the last time she spanked me at the age of 15, I did something. I smarted off, and she got her bamboo stick, and she hit me, and that stick broke. That should show you how hard she hit, but that should also tell you how big I was. But, you know, I, I, I still remember that time vividly, and when I think about that time, I smile. And when I remember that last time she hit me, I think back and I say, boy, she really loved me. And that is the perspective you and I need to have when we understand that God disciplines us. It is meant to right a wrong. It is meant to turn us around. It is meant to correct us. And if you have that perspective, then instead of getting angry and mad at God, why He allows certain things to happen in your life, you can actually learn the lesson that the discipline brings Instead of getting mad all the time, feeling all emotional, you will finally learn the lesson that God wants you to learn through discipline as He tries to get our attention. The second takeaway, look at verses 14 and 15. Moreover, I will make you a waste and reproach among the nations that are all around you in the sight of all who pass by. So it shall be a reproach, a taunt, a lesson, and an astonishment to the nations that are all around you. And I will execute judgments among you in anger, and in fury and in furious rebukes, I, the Lord, have spoken. There it is again, I, the Lord, have spoken. The second thing we can learn about God's judgment, number two is this, if you're taking notes. Judgment is meant to humble. Discipline, judgment, is meant to humble us. God said because of his judgment using the Babylonians, the people of Israel will now become a reproach. That means they will be criticized. They will be chided by the nations that surrounded them. Everyone who walks by will laugh at them. Look at verse 15. They will taunt them. They will see the ruins of this once great city and this once great nation soon to be exiled. And they will be surprised, verse 15, and they will also learn from it. It will serve as a warning to them of what God can do and how He humbles the proud. For generations, the people of Israel had taunted God. We are a great nation. We don't have to listen to you. You really won't do those things to us. God says, well, let me just show you. A loving God disciplines and judges us so that He can humble us. He humbles us in our pride, so that our pride does not go unchecked, 
that it causes us to do things where God's greater judgment will then have to be poured out in our lives. So judgment to humble us is a good thing. And you and I know it's often the case. You can't tell a proud person, be humble. It doesn't work. Humility is an attitude. And often a proud person does not become humble until they have suffered, until they have been disciplined. A proud person can pretend to be humble. But unless they have suffered, they're only faking it most of the time. You know, our culture, we don't allow failure. Do not fail. And so every time our child fails, our friends fail, something bad happens, we come in and rescue them. We are telling them, you are deserving of success. You do not deserve failure. We are actually doing them a disservice when we come to the rescue all the time. And we never teach them that with failure comes humility. And no wonder our young people today have such big egos and they don't have a grasp of the reality of this world because they've been so coddled and so protected that they are not allowed to fail and we have 10,000 reasons justifying why they failed. Because they are so deserving of success. Men and women understand this now. That that sort of attitude will only create very proud people. The Bible is replete with verses and words of wisdom that tells us God's form in judgment coming through failures is a way to humble us. King Canute, which was a medieval king, living more than a thousand years ago, ruling over Denmark, Norway, and England, was a wise ruler, worked diligently to make his subjects better. But as often the case as a monarch, he was surrounded by those who sought to gain influence and prominence with him. And according to the ancient stories, he, he grew tired of their continual flattery, and he determined to put it to an end. So he ordered one day that his throne be carried out to the seashore, and he gathered his royal court at the seashore. And there at the sea, the king sat in his throne and commanded the tide not to come in. Ocean waves do not come. And yet as those words were coming out of his mouth, the water was lapping around his throne and around his legs as the tides of the ocean did not heed him. According to one historian's account, King Canute rose up from his throne and said to all that had gathered there, let all men know how empty and worthless is the power of kings. For there is none worthy of the name but he whom heaven, earth, and sea obey by eternal laws. I love that. Let all people know how empty and worthless is the power of earthly kings. You may be the king of your company. You may be the king of your family. You may be the king of your community. You may be the king of your group of friends. But there is none worthy of that name. There is only one king of kings. And he is the one by whom, with one word, he commands the forces of heaven to affect earth and beyond. We cannot even stop the waves from crashing over us. My friends, God shares His glory with no one. 
and will judge and discipline those who steal his glory. He will keep us humble. It is a good reminder for us. The third and final takeaway is found in verses 16 and 17. Look with me. When I send against them the terrible arrows of famine, which shall be for destruction, which I will send to destroy you, I will increase the famine upon you and cut off your supply of bread. So I will send against you famine and wild beasts, and they will bereave you. Pestilence and blood shall pass through you, and I will bring the sword against you. I, there it is again, the Lord have spoken. The third thing we learn about God's judgment, number three, if you're taking notes, is that judgment can come in any form. In verses 16 to 17, there's a list of ways by which God judges and disciplines. His arrows, quote-unquote, includes famine, wild beasts, pestilence, plague, blood, calamities. We should understand that God's full range of arsenal of discipline and judgment is effective even for us as believers. His judgments can come to us in any form. It can come in the form of a slap on the hand, figuratively. The sending of someone to perhaps teach us a lesson, a word of correction, a pastor speaking on a Sunday morning, a parent telling you how to live a better life, perhaps something minor like the dashing of a dream, not getting in the school of your dreams, not getting the job you've always wanted. But it's a, a good lesson so that we can learn from it. And yet, sometimes we don't see that as God's judgment and God's discipline and correction. And so we live our lives, and so He has to have a greater judgment to get our attention. I remember the story of a young man who was hired by the personnel department of a large supermarket chain. And he reported to work at one of the supermarkets in that chain. And there he met the manager, and the manager greeted him with a warm handshake and a very warm smile. And then he handed that young man a broom and said, Son, your first job will be to sweep the store. But the young man said, But, but sir, I'm a college graduate. To which the manager said, Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't know you were a college graduate. Here, give me the broom. Let me show you how to sweep. Most young people of our generation will say, that job is beneath me. Sweeping the floor? We don't see that as a way by which we can learn from it. We don't see that as discipline or judgment. We just see that as our lot in life, reaching some bad misfortune. But you and I need to understand that judgment from God can come in any form. Sometimes a simple slap on the hand through a, a word of correction. Or sometimes it can come in form of something bigger, like a sickness, or perhaps even persecution, the loss of a business, or even death. If you don't believe me, look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 16. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 16, a letter to Christians, it talks about Christians who continually sin, that they will sin unto death. That means... God may prematurely take their life because as a loving God, He cannot bear the thought of Christians continually sinning and therefore He may end their life before His appointed time and call them back to glory 
so that they would no longer sin more. If you want to live life, if you want to live a long life at least, you should consider perhaps obeying God. Because He has in His arsenal of discipline, death, even for a Christian. Learn the lessons when the mild disciplines come so that he will not have to levy heavier ones. We don't have time, but if you were to read further in chapter 6, talking about the destruction of pagan shrines because of Israel's idolatry, and then you were to read chapter 7, talking about the destruction of the entire land because of the litany of Israel's sins, you will see in those two chapters that indeed a just and loving God doesn't allow sin to go unpunished. You and I need to understand that. Yes, we acknowledge that Jesus Christ, when He died on the cross, and that our belief in the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ means that we will go to heaven. He died for our sins, past, present, and future. That does in no way negate the fact that there are consequences to sin and that God also punishes for sins even in the lives of Christians. He just doesn't hold it against us in terms of our eternal destiny. But He does punish. So please be aware of that. Because in our grace-filled church, in our grace-filled life, we focus so much on grace, which is very important. And we affirm that completely. But sometimes grace can be abuse to the point where we don't believe God can judge and punish His children. Well, guess what? He does. And it won't be anyone's fault but your own. Because the warnings are put in place and they are explicitly stated right here in the Bible. May the warning of God's judgment be a warning to all of us. May it be a reminder that it is for our good, coming from a loving God, to right wrongs. May we accept it, understanding that it is a vehicle by which we can be humbled. And may we understand that it comes in any form and that we should choose the mild form of it before heavier sentences are levied against us. May our lives be transformed so that it is lived rightly before God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is a good reminder even for me that you are a God of love, and as a God of love, you judge your people. Father, I pray that the men and women of this church would live their lives in such a way that when they say they are Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, that they do not simply go through the motions of Christianity, that they do not simply pretend to be a Christian in their actions, that they live it out with the enablement of the Holy Spirit so that they can live a life set apart from this world to influence this world for you. May we indeed be the light of Christ to our community. And if we have strayed May your judgments and disciplines wake us up, call us to attention, and bring us back into the fold. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.